we're going through Daniel chapter 8. So, prophecy. Prophecy is confusing. Why? You think about the Jews talking about the Saviour. He's going to come as a conquering king, a conquering saviour. He's going to free us from all our enemies. No, 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 no. He's going to come as a suffering servant. Completely contradictory. But what's the answer? Yes, (laughs) both are true. The first coming, he came as a suffering servant. The second coming, as the coming conquering king. So, reading prophecy in the Old Testament is actually quite difficult in some ways because sometimes you have a near fulfillment and then a far fulfillment. Like today we're going to find something that is directly fulfilled in 300 years beyond the time of Daniel and then it's a type of something else that's going to happen down the track. So Daniel chapter 8, if you just turn there, when did Daniel get this vision? Well, It was the year 551 BC, two years after the vision in chapter 7, which was last week, and 12 years before Belshazzar's feast, where God wrote on the wall, which is in chapter 5. So that helps you put this in chronological order in the book of Daniel. So chapter 7 happened in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. And this vision occurred in the third year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So it's two years later, and again, it fits between chapters 4 and 5 during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar. Now, another interesting thing which you don't actually see when you're reading is that, or there might be a note in your Bible, the book of Daniel here goes back to using the Hebrew language. So chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4 is Hebrew. Chapter 2, verse 4 to chapter 7, 28 was written in Aramaic. Aramaic is the common language of the day, whereas Hebrew is the official language of the nation of Israel. Now, we're just going to discuss why God did this. Why was part of the Bible written in Aramaic? This is the only section of the Bible written in Aramaic. Well, It's, as I said, the common language of the day, and God wanted it to be understood and read by the people living at the time. And so, who was this communicated to? The whole entire kingdom of Babylon. And then, the whole entire kingdom of the Medes and Persians, which represented, at the time, most of the world's population. And, you know, Israel has gone into captivity. They've caused God's name to be blasphemed. His temple has been destroyed. And you think, oh, what's God going to do now? So what does he do? He uses four people. He raises them up into the king's service. And through them, as we've read in the last six weeks, he's caused his name to be magnified and glorified throughout the entire kingdom. Like these kings write letters to their whole kingdoms, all their provinces, revealing who God is and what God has done. And so just a quick revision. The first vision was Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the statue made up of gold, silver, bronze and iron, which represent the four kingdoms, and Daniel's explanation of it. And that was broadcast to everybody. Then in the next chapter, chapter 3, 
Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. And what happened there? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, but God saves them. Jesus is in there with them. And that's proclaimed amongst the whole conquered world at that time, under the Babylonian Empire, which is a lot of people. And then the next one, do you remember what the next one is? Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, tree chopped down. What's his diet for seven years? Grass. God humbles him because of his pride. And then he repents. And I believe he's saved. He comes to a saving faith that God is the king and that he submits to God as king. And that's broadcast over the entire known world at that time. And then there's the next kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, because Daniel lived a long time. He lived into the Medes and the Persians when Babylon was defeated. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den for being faithful in prayer. Again, now it's the Medes and Persians. You know, you think about that and you go, God did amazing things. God was not limited because his nation had been unfaithful and Satan might be thinking, haha, I've done it now. What's God going to do? Well, he takes four people and suddenly his witness, his glory is gone through this entire world kingdom multiple times. So the application for us, don't give up. The days are getting dark. The church is getting more and more corrupt. The Bible predicts that the love of many will grow cold because of the abundance of sin. Sin becoming more and more common. It also says that apostasy would mark the end times. So think of the dark days that we're in now that I believe we're heading towards the end times. I'm not putting a date on things, but I think we're getting closer to the end by the way the world's going and Israel becoming a nation again. There's more opportunity for God to use us as dedicated and faithful Christians to bring glory to himself. But don't expect it to be easy. Their lives were marked by persecution and hard work and trials, but they were faithful to God despite the difficult circumstances. So that's a a quick summary of what we've done so far and how God has been working. So why change back to the Hebrew language in chapter 7? Well, it does talk about the other nations, but the main thing is that it has specific application to Israel, and it's more future. So in chapter 8, it starts by repeating information given in chapters 2 and 7 about Greece and the Medes and Persians and their empires, and it kind of repeats the information, but then it narrows in on this one ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes, and we're going to learn a lot about him today, or a little bit in the time that we have. And we'll find that it has two fulfillments, one near, which was fulfilled in 165 BC, and then one far, which I believe is the tribulation period. So basically we're going to see, well, I believe Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of the Antichrist, and we'll relate that to the New Testament verses that talk about the Antichrist, the real one who's yet to come. So let's jump into Daniel chapter 8 and read through. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Sushan, the citadel, 
which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai, or Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will, and became great. And... As I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram, He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four Notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven, and out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the north, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground, and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, or Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright, and he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece.
The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, he shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So, before we jump in, I've got a couple of slides here. I hope you can see it. So, this is a Medo-Persian Empire. So, this is the location of Israel. And Egypt's down here. Turkey and that's over here. Asia, minor. Here's Babylon. Iraq. Iran. Over here. Persian Gulf. So, here's Babylon. And here's the River Uli. This is Sushan the Citadel. And that's going to be the future capital of the Persian Empire. At the time, it wasn't. It was just a, maybe a fortress or something like that. That's basically where Daniel was taken to, whether he was actually there or just in the vision taken there. We don't know. It's hard to tell. But what's important is that it's prophetic of the fact that that would become the place where the Medes and the Persians would set up shop as their capital. So, a long time before it happened, but even before they had actually conquered Babylon. Alright, so verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So, two years after. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Sushan the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulay. So, as I said, Babylon is still in power, and the fact that it mentions the Greek Empire, if you were back there and you were trying to predict the future, and you were thinking of, okay, the Medes and Persians are strong, and they could be a good contender to defeat Babylon, but who's the one that's going to defeat the Medes and the Persians? Well, the Greeks wouldn't have rated on your radar, you know. They would nothing. So, this is God accurately predicting the future. So, Sushan the Citadel, can you tell me where that's mentioned in the Old Testament? Esther, very good. So, in the heyday of the Medo-Persian Empire, that was the capital, and that's where everyone went. But in this case, it's just Elam, and it's probably just a little fortress there. So, verse 3, 
Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river, I was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. So, verse 20 tells us who the ram represents. Who does it represent? If you look at verse 20, it's the Medes and the Persians, right? Now, that happened nine years later. Okay, so that's, this, happened, this is predicted nine years before it happened that the Medes and Persians would do this. Now, the second horn grew stronger than the first. The Medes were the first horn, and they were initially more powerful, but the Persians eventually became the stronger of the two. So the Medes were the first horn, which came up, then the second horn, the Persians came up and became greater than the Medes. So the picture is accurate. And why use a ram? Well, at the time and later, the symbol for the Persians was a ram. For example, Amanus um, Marcellinus, <laughs> a 4th century historian, states that the Persian ruler bore the head of a ram as he stood at the head of his army. And another guy says, the ram was a national emblem of Persia a ram being stamped on Persian coins as well as on the headdress of Persian emperors. So, the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And, as I said, the Medes and the Persians. And the high one came up last, that's the, the Persians. Pushing westward, northward and southward. So, that's accurate because, I'm not going to go through the wars, but they were to the west, to the north and to the south, and not to the east. So again, it's accurate. All right, verse 5. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Now who's that? The horn represents someone in power, a king. It actually says later, it's the first king. Who was the first king of the Grecian Empire? Alexander the Great. Okay, so Alexander the Great is represented by this notable horn between his eyes. Verse 6, Then he came to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river. So the ram, Medes and Persians, as it says later in the chapter, and its capital is Elam, there, or by the river there. That's where the palace is now. The capital. And ran at him with furious power, and I saw him confronting the ram, the Medes and Persians. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So, let's have a look at this next slide. Here is the Greek Empire after Alexander died. And you got Cassander in the west there, Lysimachus, <laughs> Seleucus, and then you got Ptolemy down here. So the kingdoms that we're going to be talking about, Antiochus Epiphanes, he came from this kingdom here, 
the area of Syria. This is the area of Egypt. And there were wars between these guys. And guess who's in the middle? Israel. Okay. So as they're going down, and as these guys are coming up, these guys are in the middle. This is desert, so they have to go through here. So just to give you some context. North, south, east, and west. That's the four generals. And guess what? 200 years before the time of Daniel, the Greeks were already called the goats people. The goat was the symbol of the Greek people. And it represented the Greek empire. Now, across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, what does that tell you? What does that look like? What does it make you think? Speed, yeah. And the Greek Empire rose from the west of the previous empires from Greece is on the west. So it happened very quickly. And Alexander the Great was a notable horn. And the Greek Empire had a famous war with the Media Persian Empire. I saw him confronting the ram. So there was a confrontation. And it says, with furious power, moved with rage. Well, guess what? The Greek Empire and the Media Persian Empire greatly hated each other. Again, it's accurate. Some of the fiercest, greatest battles of ancient history were fought between the Greeks and the Persians. Now, the Greek Empire conquered the million-strong Medo-Persian Empire army starting in 334 BC with only 35,000 troops. And that predicts or fulfills the phrase there, no one could deliver the ram from his hand. Now, the reign of Alexander the Great, the first leader, first king, was cut short. He died, and the large horn was broken. So that's the death of Alexander the Great. And after Alexander's death, the Greek Empire was divided among four rulers. So there's not one kingdom anymore, it's now four. Exactly as the scriptures said it would happen. Not three, not five, but four. And there were actually five generals, and but one got killed. And so there was four just like the Bible predicted there would be. Okay. Now, why was Alexander's empire, the Grecian Empire, great? Well, it's not just its dominion, but its cultural power. And this is important for the gospel. Alexander the Great was determined to spread Greek civilization, culture, and language across every land he conquered. So, step back a bit, get the big picture. You know that Jesus is coming in you know, 600 years' time. How are you going to talk to all these people groups in all the different languages? Well, God sends Alexander the Great, puts his, in his heart this desire to get everyone to speak Koine Greek. And so everywhere he conquers, which is most of the place, from India to Afghanistan, wherever you think, everyone's speaking Greek. And everyone has the same kind of culture. Here's a story, an interesting story concerning Alexander the Great, and it'll give you some background on him. After defeating the Medo-Persian king Xerxes in 334 BC, Alexander went on and kept going south to Israel. When he neared Jerusalem, he was poised to annihilate it when the high priest met him outside the city and showed him this passage, Daniel chapter 8. Written 200 years earlier, because the Medes and Persians reigned for about 200 years. So convinced was Alexander that it was actually talking about him, that spoke of him, that he spared 
Jerusalem. So the city was saved because the word was shared. It's pretty cool, eh? So he's coming with his army. The high priest goes out and he says, hey, read this. This is you. <laughs> oh, wow. It's my God that told me that you were coming. He then went into Egypt and founded Alexandria, swept north in the present day Afghanistan, and then made a run into India. After conquering India, he went back to Babylon and established that city as his capital. At that point, realizing he had conquered the entire known world, he wept that there were no more worlds left to conquer. All right. (laughs) Poor guy. Now, again, think of the Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament. Can you imagine how difficult and slight would have been for Paul and the other first century missionaries if they had to go from one province to another and learn a different language, translate the Bible into that language? You know, it just wouldn't have happened. So God knew what he was doing. Now, later on, this is not in Daniel chapter 8, this is the Roman Empire. What do they do? Not only is there a common culture and language, but now there's a, a worldwide transport system, roads going everywhere. So perfect conditions for sharing the gospel to the whole world in a short period of time. So the large horn was broken, it says in verse 8. And I just want to reflect on Alexander's life and compare his life to Jesus. He's just defeated King Xerxes. At the party he threw for all of his soldiers upon their return to Babylon, Alexander became drunk. He walked back to his residence in the rain and slept in his damp clothes. Within three days, he died of pneumonia at the age of 33. Alexander was the epitome of what the world looks for in a leader. His father was Philip of Macedon, a brilliant general. As little Alexander watched his father, he grew bitterly jealous of his conquest. He complained to those around him that his father was going to conquer everything and leave nothing for Alexander to do. When he was 13 years old, Philip realized his son was uniquely gifted, so he brought in the finest scholar of the ancient world, a philosopher named Aristotle. You've probably heard of him to teach his son. He was then given a black horse so powerful that no other man could tame or ride him. Alexander was able to do both. Seeing his son upon his mighty horse, Philip said, My son, Macedonia is not worthy of you. Conquer a kingdom that is great. By the time he was 20, Alexander had gained control of Greece. As he was conquering some of the rebellious areas north of Macedonia, he heard that the city of Thebes had the audacity to revolt against him. He went to Thebes, destroyed every building in the city, and killed every man, woman, and child, except 30,000 whom he sold into slavery. At that point, everyone in Greece realized they dare not rebel against him no matter how long he was gone. Alexander was a powerful man, a military genius, yet he died broken and empty. Now, I want to contrast Alexander the Great with Jesus, who also died at the age of 33. So Alexander was a man who made himself to be God. Because remember those leaders, they wanted all the praise and the people to worship them. Jesus, who was God, humbled himself and became a man, Philippians 2, 5 and 7. Unlike Alexander, Jesus was not in competition with his father, rather Jesus was in submission to his father. He said, I have come to do the will of him that sent me, and I always do the things that please my father. It's John six thirty eight and eight twenty nine. 
At the age of 13, Alexander was taught by Aristotle. At the age of 12, Jesus was teaching the priests. Alexander shed the blood of millions for his own glorification. Jesus shed his own blood for our salvation. Alexander rode a magnificent black stallion. Jesus rode a lowly donkey. Alexander wiped out the city of Thebes and enslaved the rebels. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem and freed the sinners. Friends, you must die, Alexander said before killing a friend whom he thought had made advances toward his wife. Jesus said, friend, who do you seek? To Judas, when he went to betray him. When Alexander died, his body was placed in a golden casket, moved from Babylon to Memphis in Egypt and finally to Alexandria, where a great monument was built to his memory. When Jesus died, he was also moved from the place where he was buried, (laughs) not to another burial place, but to heaven, where he lives to make intercession for you and me, Hebrews 7.25. Alexander is simply a memory. Jesus is the Messiah who is coming again. So why did I go through all that? We want to be great in the kingdom? What does it look like? Not like Alexander. We want to be like Jesus, okay? So the contrast between the world's way of leadership and Jesus' leadership. It's an upside-down kingdom. Verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn. At one of them is, we're talking about one of the four horns that came up, one of the generals. It's Seleucus the Syrian part of the Grecian Empire there. And a few generations have gone on, and you've got Antiochus I and Antiochus II, Antiochus III, and we're talking about Antiochus IV. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as a prince of the host, that's Jesus, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. The cast down just means desecrated, not literally smashed, knocked down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn, that's um, this Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So, a little horn grew exceedingly great, and this is... One of the leaders from the Seleucus general, one of his descendants there. Now, I've just explained to you before that Israel is between Syria and Egypt, and as they were going back and forth, they kept on running over. (laughs) Poor little Israel there. They're pretty much defenseless. And in 198 BC, the Syrian, the Seleucids, they gained power. They defeated the Egyptians. Now, Antiochus IV, a bit about him, he gained the throne of his father, Antiochus III, by murdering his brother, the former king Seleucus Philopator. He was the rightful heir to the throne, but Antiochus IV had him held hostage in Rome. And Antiochus IV, again, he's like a picture of the Antichrist, how did he get there? Through flattery and bribery. He did some amazing, smart things. Not smart as in God smart, but worldly smart. And he bribed people. He gave things away. He got people on side. And that's how he rose to the ranks and got what he wanted. So, verse 9 to 12 happened exactly as predicted. Here's a summary. 
So one of the four horns of Seleucid family controlled Babylon and Syria. Out of that family came a very infamous individual who the Bible calls a little horn. Now, he is not the same little horn as the one in chapter 7. Okay, again, why prophecy can be confusing. That little horn, which came out of the ten-nation confederation, is what we believe, or some people believe, is the Antichrist. If you remember the statue, the legs of iron and the ten toes, the little horn in chapter 7 comes from the Roman Empire. This little horn comes from the Grecian Empire. Okay? So this little horn coming from the Grecian Empire is past. It's already happened. It happened before Jesus came. So from 175 to 164 BC, this little horn known as Antiochus Epiphanes came on the scene as the leader of Syria and Babylon. He called himself Theos Epiphanes. Now what does Theos mean in Greek? God. So he's calling himself God Manifested. Others called him Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus the Shining One because he was ruling in the area of Antioch. The Jews, aware of this madman, called him Antiochus Epinanes, which means Antiochus the Insane One. <laughs> so he was insane. He really thought he was God. That's what we would consider insane anyway. The world doesn't consider that to be insane. They recognized that he was deranged, and history confirms that this was true. He began to expand his empire by conquering everything that he set his eyes upon, including Israel. And he hated the Jews so much that he demanded that all the holy writings of the Jews be burned. All right? So you probably heard that before. When people try and destroy another culture, they burn all their books. Well, he tried to burn all their Jewish books, including the Bible, the Old Testament, as they had it back then. So, claiming to be God, he built a statue and put it in the temple. When the Jews revolted, 40,000 were killed in a single day, and perhaps it's unknown, but a million more, could be up to a million more in the ensuing months. He then butchered a pig on the altar in the temple, smeared the blood on the walls, and forced the priests to drink the remainder. He was a cruel madman, a picture of the Antichrist himself. Jesus refers to this abomination of desolation as being future, because that's the other little horn spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, coming from the Roman Empire. So, the glorious land, that's a reference of Israel. He even exalted himself as high as a prince of the host. So the host represents Israel. If you go read through the Pentateuch, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Israel is referred to as the host, the armies. The armies brought out of it, the host was brought out of Egypt. So basically, he's exalting himself against Jesus. And he did extend his dominion towards the southeast and the land of Israel. So this guy, this nasty king, he murdered other rulers and persecuted the people of Israel, which fulfills, he cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Antiochus Epiphanes blasphemed God and commanded idolatrous worship directed toward himself. That confirms and fulfills the phrase, he exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Antiochus Epiphanes put a stop to temple sacrifices in Jerusalem, which fulfills the phrase, by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple which fulfills the phrase, the place of his sanctuary was cast down or desecrated. Antiochus Epiphanes opposed God and seemed to prosper. 
which fulfills the phrase, he cast down truth to the ground, he did all this and prospered. You see how everything's been exactly fulfilled? We look back in history and think, wow, it's perfect. You couldn't have described it better. He cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground. Hosts and stars are symbols in the Old Testament used for angels, kings and leaders or the people of God at large. And in this case, it's most likely the people of God. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn, the Antiochus Epiphanes, to oppose the daily sacrifices. And a little story here to help you see what was going on at the time in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel did really deserve to be judged at this time. The first attack of Antiochus against the Jews at this time was to settle a rivalry for the office of high priest. Now you know how there's one high priest and then when he died his son would take over. Well, there was a pious or godly high priest called Onias III who was removed from office and replaced with his brother Jason because Jason bribed Antiochus. <laughs> Remember the Grecian Empire is a dominant empire. And then in 172 BC, a little bit later, another brother called Melenus gave Antiochus an even bigger bribe and replaced Jason. A year later, Melenus started selling many of the temple's gold utensils to raise money to pay off the bribe. Onias rebuked him and Melenus had him murdered. Meanwhile, Jason, the other guy, gathered armies and fought against Melenus to regain the office of high priest. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes came to Jerusalem in 171 BC to defend the man who paid him the biggest bribe. That's why he came the first time. So it's just a mess. The temple system was corrupt. It was evil. Whoever paid the biggest bribe to the Grecian leader in Syria got to be the high priest. Verse 13, they heard a holy one speaking and another holy one that said to that certain one who was speaking. So it's like a conversation between angels with Daniel hearing. How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host Israel to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And then I heard a holy one speaking, an angel. How long will the vision be? So Daniel isn't asking the question. There's a conversation going on between these two angels. Some people say it could be Jesus, but you can't really tell with the information given. So they wanted to know how long the sacrifices would be suspended and how long the sanctuary would be desecrated. 2,300 evenings and mornings. If you look in your Bible, there should be a little side note there. It's not days, it's evenings and mornings. So the date when the temple was cleansed is well established as December 25th, 165 BC. And if you go back 2,300 days from then, we come to the year when Antiochus Epiphanes began his persecution of Israel. So there's different interpretations. I'm only going to give you one because otherwise it'll be too long and you'll be confused. Okay? So if you want to look this up and look at the different interpretations, go for it. But I'm just giving you one. So, when Antiochus Epiphanes began his reign on September 6, 171 BC, a man named Matthias in the village of Modin, this is in Israel, refused to give in to his pressure. 
like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to submit. For this he was killed. But he had five sons. These five sons, led by Judah, remember Judah Maccabean? The oldest was so incensed that with guerrilla tactics, they began attacking the soldiers, the army of Antiochus. Others joined, and the Maccabean revolt was underway. You probably heard of the Maccabean revolt? All right, that's how it started. And on December 25th, 165 BC, they drove Antiochus and his boys out of the land. Judah and his men then went into the temple, cleaned it from the defilements of Antiochus, and relit the candles. But there was only enough oil, you know, the holy oil that they used for the menorah, to burn for one day. And according to the Old Testament regulations, it takes eight days to purify and do all the ceremonial stuff to make the new oil. So they prayed that the oil would miraculously last. And the Lord answered their prayers, and the candles burned for the eight days until the new oil was ready. Now the commemoration of this event is called the Feast of Lights, Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah. Hanukkah. And it happened December 25th, 165 BC. So that's, you know, pretty close to 2,300 days. Now, this is an example of using something the wrong way, this next interpretation. I said I wasn't going to go through other ones, but I'll do one more obviously wrong interpretation, okay? So, anyone heard of William Miller? Well, he used the 2,300 year days, he said, oh, one day is a year, to calculate that Jesus would return in 1844. That's 2,300 years after Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the temple. Now, his movement ended up giving birth to the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and several other movements. And they all predicted that Jesus would come back in 1844. Of course, he didn't come back. All right. So, this passage was fulfilled before the time of Jesus. We know it was literally fulfilled. We've just been through all the fulfillments of that. So, it's dangerous to allegorize and do things and try and get dates from prophecy. That was just an example of what you shouldn't be doing. Jesus himself went to the Feast of Dedication, commemorating the cleansing and rededication of the temple after the desecration brought by Antiochus Epiphanes. And you'll find that in John 10.22. So this was written 350 years before the event happened. All these details are written 350 years before it happened. So God knew exactly what was going on. So, the vision is interpreted in the next section of this chapter, and it's verse 15. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me, one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. He called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now this is getting confusing, right? It's already happened, now it's the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright, and he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. 
So the end of the time and the latter time indignation often are used to describe the tribulation period, the time just before Jesus comes back. What's the answer to this apparent dilemma? You know, it's being fulfilled, and yet Gabriel is saying it's for the time of the end. Well, I was telling you that sometimes you can have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So you can have a dual fulfillment, all right, in, in some prophecies. So Antiochus Epiphanes is sometimes called the Antichrist of the Old Testament. He prefigures or is a type of the Antichrist of the end times. Just as Antiochus Epiphanes rose to power with force and intrigue, so was the Antichrist. As he persecuted the Jews, so was the Antichrist. As he stopped the sacrifice and desecrated the temple, so was the Antichrist. You read all this in the New Testament. As he seemed to be a complete success, unstoppable, so will the Antichrist. From what Antiochus did to the Jews in his day, therefore one may know the general pattern of what the Antichrist would do to them in the future. That's what a commentator said. Now, Daniel 9.27, which refers to the last seven years of human government before Jesus comes back, which is often called the tribulation period, gives extra insight to the dual fulfillment of this passage. So I've got Daniel 9.27 on the screen. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, seven years. But after half this time, three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defile is finally poured out on him. So this is talking about the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, coming from the Roman Empire. But Antiochus is a type. What Antiochus does, the other guy is going to do too. And then we go through, and the next verses talk about, in verse 20 and 22, it talks about, it explains what we've already explained, about Alexander being the horn, and the four kingdoms are rising out of the nation, but not with its power. It's the four generals. And going on to verse 23, this is interesting. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when their transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people, the people of Israel. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity, and even rise against the prince of princes, Jesus. But he shall be broken without human means, and the vision of the evening mornings which was told is true. Therefore seal up the vision for it first in many days in the future. So, I want to do a comparison all right, between the near and the far fulfillment. So, in the latter time of their kingdom, so their kingdom is the Grecian kingdom, the latter time of the Grecian kingdom, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? So the prophecy in this passage refers, reads equally true of both Antiochus and Antichrist. Having fierce features, Antiochus Epiphanes was known for his cruel brutality, and the Antichrist will be no different. He's going to slaughter people. If you don't worship the image set up in the temple, Revelation, off goes your head who understands sinister schemes through his cunning. Antiochus was known for his flattery, bribery, and his smooth tongue. Now, what's the Antichrist going to do? He's going to come and he's going to make a peace treaty with Israel. He's going to make a covenant. Uh, that's Daniel 9.27, which we read. 
His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Antiochus Epiphanes was empowered by Satan and allowed by God. The same will be true of the coming Antichrist. He's going to prosper and thrive. Antiochus Epiphanes looked like a total success, unstoppable. And the coming Antichrist will look like a complete winner until God topples his reign. He's going to come with those millions, tens of millions of soldiers, gather in the um, Valley of Megiddo there, and then head past Petra or Bosra and then towards Jerusalem. And God's going to wipe him out. Not by human means. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. So Antiochus Epiphanes not only destroyed his enemies, but also harshly persecuted the people of God, the Israelites. And the coming Antichrist will also destroy and persecute the people of Israel. He shall cause deceit to prosper. Both the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes in the past and of the Antichrist in the future are marked by deceit. Now just a couple of examples. Oh, I meant to show this first, Matthew twenty four fifteen. Before, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads it, let him understand. Just to show you that this abomination of desolation in Daniel 9.27 is still future from Jesus' time. It hasn't happened yet. Okay? Happened in the past. The Grecian horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, but it's going to happen again, according to Jesus. Now, the scripture that refers to what I've just been talking about here, he shall cause deceit to prosper, is Second Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, talking about the Antichrist. It says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Now, he shall exalt himself in his heart. It says that in verse 25. Guess what? This guy, he made coins. He inscribed the coins with this title, Theos Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. That's what Antiochus IV did. The Antichrist is also going to exalt himself. And we read that in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, Satan has always been doing this, and what we read concerning Antiochus and the Antichrist to come is just a manifestation of Satan's egotistical desires. We read that in Isaiah. It's also in Ezekiel, but I'll read this one from Isaiah. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. So, now the phrase there in verse, I think it's 25, he shall destroy many in their prosperity. Initially, Antichrist will come as a man of peace, solving the problems of the Middle East, solving the economic tensions in the world. But in the middle of the tribulation, he'll show his true colors. Three and a half years after he comes to power, blood will flow and heads will roll. We've been through that before. According to Second Thessalonians 2, when Antichrist sets up his image and demands to be worshipped, anyone who doesn't will be killed. And where do we read that? Second Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. 
It says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin, another name for the Antichrist, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or all that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. So Antiochus Pythanes, he didn't really hate the Jews so much. He hated Jesus, God. And because they were God's people, he then he hated them. And that's why Satan hates us. That's why the world hates us, because we are children of God. They hate God, therefore they hate us. And that's what Jesus says in the book of John, why people don't like Christians in the world. Broken without human means. That's the next phrase there. Antiochus Epiphanes wasn't killed in battle. He died of disease. Not by human means. And in a similar way, there's no one man is going to defeat Antichrist, but Jesus will. Revelation 19.20 Therefore seal up the vision. Oh, this is interesting. Why would you seal it up? Well, in his day, this vision referred to a period far distant in its ultimate fulfillment. For us, guess what? The time is near. Have a look at these two verses. Revelation 1.3 Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So, Revelation is written at the end of the first century and it's saying these things are going to happen soon. And basically, the church age is the start of the end times. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days and afterward I rose and went about the king's business and I'm astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So, you can imagine being Daniel, not quite understanding what was going on because you're seeing kingdoms that don't exist yet. You're seeing things happening that are terrible and cruel. You're seeing the temple be defiled, you know, something that's really important to you. It would make you sick. It would make you go, oh, I feel terrible. You'd have like, um, what's it, post-traumatic stress syndrome? (laughs) You know, that's what we'd call it today. That's what I reckon he had. It's just like, oh, that was terrible, you know, having seeing something so, so traumatic. Now, it says, I went about the king's business. So Daniel didn't let this stop him from doing his job and doing what the king wanted him to do. In this case, King Belshazzar. So, again, at the time it was for future generations. Guess what? We are the future generations. As it says in Revelation there, the time is near. So I've just got to finish with a quote. Although the vision was so real to Daniel that it had a physical effect on him, he didn't understand its meaning. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you're saying, I don't get it. Little horns and ten toes and brass bellies. (laughs) I'm completely confused. That's okay. It will affect you just as it did Daniel. Whether or not you can identify the ten toes is not the point. God is saying in this book, wake up. We're not playing a game here. We're talking about eternal destiny. And friends and family going through the tribulation unnecessarily about suffering, persecution, and eternal damnation. As believers, we are in an important place as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore, like Daniel, we too must go about our king's 
the ultimate king's business. We can't just cruise through Christianity, going through a Bible study occasionally, praying sporadically, hoping things will work out eventually. We must be about the king's business continually. So, my prayer for you is that we will see that this is all giving stuff that's going to happen before the end. The end is when Jesus comes back. All right? When he comes back, it's judgment. Now, if you're not saved at that point, you're toast. So, our message is we need to get people saved. We need to tell them that judgment is coming. And if they don't repent before they die, then they will go to hell. That is our job, that we are ambassadors for Christ. We're pleading on behalf of God. Jesus took the punishment for your sin. He became the payment for your sin so that you don't have to die. He became sin and you became his righteousness. Father, I thank you for the amazing prophecy we read today with Antiochus Epiphanes, the king in the Grecian kingdom there, and fulfilling all those prophecies every T crossed and every I dotted, so to speak, and Lord, 350 years in advance, these things happened. And we just thank you that you've written it down for us, and that we can look back and we can know with confidence that you hold the future in your hands. Now, even if we don't understand everything that's in there, we know that we're secure in you, and we know who wins, and we know that we're going to be with you forever, ruling and reigning with you. So we just pray that you'll give us that big picture understanding, that you'll give us this desire to see people saved. Lord, we really want to see people saved. We want to want them to be with us in your kingdom forever and ever and not be cast into the lake of fire. And so we just pray that you give us boldness, give us wisdom, and give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.